Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool analyst Yasser El-Shimi as we take a look at a newly public creativity platform that is encouraging customers everywhere to turn their silliest ideas into very real and viable products, Cricut. Now, this is spelled C-R-I-C-U-T, like cry, cut, but somehow spoken like Cricut. Yasser, this is driving me insane. It drove me insane too. For a long time, for the longest, I assumed it was pronounced Cricut, uh, but apparently not. They they just I guess when it, the logo is a giveaway with the little ears jumping out of the sea. So I guess they're kind of hinting at the Cricut connection. But why they came up with that name, I have no idea. I apologize in advance for all of our listeners if I refer to this business as Cry Cut throughout the show. I am working off an outline here, and it is impossible for me to read this name and not want to say Cry Cut, but I'll do my best to pronounce it the correct way, which is Cricket, as I found out by going down this rabbit hole of very long YouTube videos where there are all these creative people who are using Cricket products to, to make fun items, doing tutorial shows. I initially went there to figure out how to pronounce the name, but then I found myself stuck in this YouTube rabbit hole for hours. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, Yasser, this is a relatively new IPO. Uh, the ticker is CRCT. How did you hear about this company? Excellent question, Emily, and I wish I had a, mem- a more memorable answer for it. So, you know, this was not a case where someone special in my life had made a gift for me that was personalized using a Cricut machine. I wish I could tell that story. Uh, it's more that I, you know, if you know my investing style, I, I tend to have a soft spot for IPOs and I have a soft spot for especially smaller companies um, that have a lot of potential for the future. So I periodically kind of just follow the news of everything IPOs. I have my own filters um, in terms of you know the companies that I that I tried to get to, um, and this one crossed my radar, and you know I thought to myself, this is interesting. Um, you know we're supposed to be living in a world of increasing personalization, customization, gig work, and e-commerce, and you know a company like Cricket could be potentially the infrastructure upon which much of you know what is designed and built in this new economy gets done. So. You know, it definitely piqued my interest, but, you know, like you, I was kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just a sign of the millennial investor that when, whenever we see anything with hardwares, we're like, yeah, I don't know about that. So, so I was like, you know, let's, let's put this on the back burner for a while. But then they came out with their Q1 earnings and boy, oh boy, did they just blow it out of the park. Um, you know, very impressive numbers. Um, so I unfortunately, you know, had I taken a position at the time when I was initially interested, I would have at least doubled uh, my posi- my money there. But, you know, I didn't. Um, and here we are. Um, but, you know, Cricket is one of those rare breed of companies, I would say, at least for now, uh, that have high triple digit growth, as we saw in uh, their Q1 uh, release. Um, and are profitable at the same time. And 
pretty much the top dog in the niche in which they operate. Um, and, and, you know, the niche in which they operate is a growing space. So given all of the above, I would say it's probably should be on, on any investors watch list, especially growth investors. Well, I'm happy that you have a soft spot for IPOs because I think as frequent listeners will know, I, I think I'm overly harsh, especially on IPOs. I tend to be an expert, arbitrary nitpicker. And I did nitpick on this business because if you're listening to the show and maybe at this point you've Googled cricket, uh, cry cut, and you've thought to yourself, I'm curious about what this business is. You may have had the exact initial reaction that Yasser and I just mentioned, which is you went to their website and you saw a bunch of hardware and you thought to yourself, I am not investing in a hardware business. I had the same thought, but this is really almost Apple-like in its business model. Now, I don't want to say this is Apple-like in the sense that they have not clearly reached the scale that Apple has and their product is not applicable to every single person on the face of the planet the way that Apple's products are and were, but it is taking a similar approach to combining the hardware and software model, which makes the business really interesting. So um, can you explain to us just a quick overview about what, what Cricket is, what these creativity products are and how they monetize it? I would definitely be happy to do that. And and before I, I do so, I just want to comment here that, you know, in terms of the hardware sales, um, you know, we all still have memories of, you know, companies like Compaq computer machines or, you know, Kodak, uh, you know, and, and Xerox and so on. So I think we can be excused if we are a little harsh on hardware companies, uh, at least when it comes to, you know, picking them. Now, in terms of, you know, the business that Cricket does and, and works in, well, they help people, you know, cr effectively create custom craft projects at home. So they have a number of different effectively printers, I want to say, machines um, that help users or artists effectively customize and make personalized, customized uh, products and use using those printers or those machines. Now, on top of that, they also have a software tool that contains hundreds of thousands of designs and patterns and fonts and so on that, that can help with that customization process. So users can pick out what they want and then they upload the designs to Cricut's machines, um, which are in their homes. And then, you know, the machine custom cuts out exactly the pattern that the user wants. And, you know, and you can make that pattern, you can apply it to make a physical product. Um, so if you ever gotten something like a custom card or a mug or custom t-shirt from somebody on Etsy or other platform, there's a good chance they may have used the Cricut um, machine for that. The last part of their, um, their kind of product portfolio and their business is the accessories and materials part. Um, so on top of those machines and the software, they'll, they're also all too happy to sell you the materials which you are going to need to make whatever product uh, you're making, be that the ceramic mug or the cloth for a t-shirt or, um, you know, some accessories like, uh, you know, a printer or, a, you know, some some writing tools. Um, and, and they exist along all of these lines. And that's perhaps, you know, Emily, I would argue one of the more interesting parts about this business is the fact that they are vertically integrated in a sense that they aggregate 
all the different points that you know any craft artist would have to go through in order to um, you know create a new product. They try and make it as simple, as convenient as possible, and therefore they create an, an sort of an ecosystem or a walled garden where artists and users can go and never have to leave. And that's usually a hallmark of a successful business. And what I like most about this strategy is not that they are the only place where you can get wood that works with a Cricut machine. You can go out to any any store and buy plywood as long as it meets its, you know, not too thick, it's not too thin. It's, if it's the right size, you can go out and you can buy plywood and you can stick it in your Cricut uh, machine and you can make whatever thing you're planning on, on making in the first place. I, I clearly am not a creative person, not part of their addressable market here since I can't even come up with anything that you'd use wood to make. But regardless, people still choose to purchase it over Cricut. Cricut has their own Cricut wood where you can buy alongside the machine, get it shipped to your house automatically, and you know just from ease and simplicity that that is going to work with your Cricut machine. So increasingly, a large part of their business is just upselling to these accessories and add-ons that you get with their base machines. It's a really interesting business model. They call it uh, the monetization flywheel. And I, I kind of hate when businesses just throw flywheel in there to try to make it unique. But in this case, it is an ecosystem. They are pulling them in, initially selling them the Cricut machines, monetizing it further by upselling accessories, and actually even selling that subscription on top. So subscription to a library of items that you can get and participate to use on your Cricut machine. It's it is super interesting. Um, and it's a strategy that I think is unique in this space. I can't think of a single competitor that is doing what Cricket is doing today. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And, you know, and, and I believe you, Emily, mentioned sort of an analogy between Cricket and Apple and the way that they, you know, you think the product is a phone, but actually there's a lot more beyond that phone, including subscribing to all the different Apple software services. Uh, that are needed to operate your phone. The fact that you know Apple takes a thirty percent cut on any app that goes on on the machine. Uh, also, you get all these accessories. They sell you the now. They even sell you the charger uh, to your phone. Like you buy a thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred dollar phone, and you still have to buy a charger on top of it. Uh, so that's 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 a very interesting analogy there that you make. I would also you know a, another company that reminds me of. Cricket, albeit in a completely different business, would be Axon Enterprises. And the reason I say that is because, you know, you think of Axon, which used to be Taser International, and I know it's a beloved company across the Motley Fool. Um, you know, they create physical hardware products, including, you know, the body cams, the, the actual tasers and so on. But they also have their own cloud-centric uh, software component like evidence.com where data is stored and, and archived and sorted and so on uh, for ease of use by police departments. So, you know, in, in a way, you know, Cricket is not too far away from that kind of business in the sense that they do have their hardware products. In this case, it's the machines, um, but also they have the subscription software to go along with that um, and, and can sell you accessories if you'd like. I love the Axon example. You say Axon and I immediately get excited. It's, it's an amazing business. And it's funny that you bring that up because I think their mission statement as a company is something like to protect lives. It's a really big, bold, 
broad mission statement that really hammers home what the intent and the purpose of the company is. And when I look at Cricket, one of the things that I really liked out of their S1, and admittedly their S1's a little dated by this point, so I apologize for that, but their mission statement is to help people lead creative lives. And I'm usually not much one for mission statements. I, I've been a critic of bad mission statements in the past, but Brian Feroldi and Brian Stoffel, they're converting me as I talk to them more and more. But I really liked this mission statement, help people leave creative lives. It applies to every aspect of their business and actually I think leaves a lot of room for optionality and how they can expand their business in the future. I like that it seemed direct, it seemed to have a targeted audience while still leaving opportunity for growth. Well, it is it is an excellent point, and I would probably try and join the two Brian's here to convert you into believing more in mission statements. And if you remember from our discussion on Farfetch before, uh, you know, I mentioned in my Shimi checklist that I always look for the vision. What is the vision of the company? What is the vision of the founder? I would I like to see that is ambitious. Um, it's actually grand in, a, in, a, in its scope, but at the same time, it's attainable. It's not something that, you know, pie in the sky kind of kind of talk. Um, so help people lead creative lives. I feel it is achievable. You know, it's it basically they enable people to create things uh, that they other that otherwise they could potentially make. It's just going to be a lot harder and, you know, with a lot more friction uh, in the process. So they make it easier for people, I would say, to to indeed to be creative and to create new things that they otherwise may just decide not to because it's that much inconvenient. Well, as much as we've talked about how this is more than just a hardware play, this is a business that does more than, I believe it's around 40% of their revenue right now coming from the sale of their machines, so the sale of their hardware. Uh, what different products are there? When we talk about Cricut machines, what are we talking about? Right. So when we talk about the machines, there are three machines, and they start sort of all the way from, you know, uh, the bottom of the ladder, if you will, you have the Crooked Joy. Uh, that's a $180 machine. It's made effectively for hobbyists, um, small personal use. Um, it enables you to cut out about 50 or so different materials. Um, you know, it has some uh, some tools, you know, two, two different tools that, again, are more kind of geared towards the hobbyists. Um, and, and Probably one of their best sellers. Um, the other, the next one is a Cricut Explore, which is their mid-tier product, um, and and kind of tries to offer uh, you know 100 different types of materials as opposed to 50, um, and has five tool capabilities for cutting, writing, and scoring, and so on. And then finally, you have the Cricut Maker. Uh, which is a professional grade tool that's used for people that probably are professional in, in the way that they do their craft. And so I would imagine that everybody who's selling on, you know, on Etsy or Amazon Marketplace or uh, some other place where they are where they're making these kind of customizable uh, uh, craft products that they are probably using the Cricut Maker, which retails for approximately $400 can use a lot more materials inc including wood uh by the way so that's kind of you know where the you know they 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 capture all different parts of the you know spectrum if you will from hobbies to professional the one thing i would add here though is that there are other companies that are getting into this business 
including a really interesting young private company called Glowforge. And I, I don't know if you heard about it uh, before, but it makes 3D printers that are actually geared towards uh, this kind of craft space. So one thing I would love to see Cricut does is actually get those uh, you know, M&A uh, engines going and potentially try and snap up some of those younger companies, especially a company like Glowforge that, that is specialized in something relatively new here, which is the creation of 3D uh, craft products. Thousands of investors everywhere just cringed when you said 3D printing, because I think a lot of us still have scars from when we all thought everybody was going to have a 3D printer in their home. And then it was really just the use cases weren't quite there. And I will say when reading through Cricket's S1, I was given 3D printing vibes. These machines, while a little bit smaller than a 3D printer, are about the size of a printer, a regular printer themselves. So they're pretty sizable machines. They don't have a ton of use cases if you're not a regular hobbyist. And they're expensive. And and I, I just can't help but think to myself, what is what is engagement? What does retention look like for these machines? Is this something that is just eventually going to be sitting in the back of somebody's closet? And what did help me feel a little bit more comfortable was that around 63% of all the users, so everybody who had bought one of these machines in the past 90 days had used it to make at least one creative product. And 84% had used it over the last 365 days, so the last year, to make a creative product. Um, I'm curious about how you feel about those levels of engagement and, and retention numbers. Does that does that give you 3D printing vibes, or do you feel like that's decent? Well, first of all, let me let me disagree with you a little bit on the 3D printing vibe uh, argument. I think that you know, as investors, we did we do tend to get scarred by prior experiences we have had. And therefore, we can write off entire sectors, including 3D printing, including, uh, I would say, renewable energy, for example. There were there was so much optimism in the early 2000s to mid 2000s um, for these kind of emerging sectors that people got a little carried away and got burned, obviously, by investing in these kinds of companies. Now, you know, I'm about to utter the most dangerous words in English language, which is maybe this time will be different. Um, in the sense that the technology has come such a long way since then to make these things actually much more likely to succeed than not. And I, I can see, I can, you know, I follow some of the developments in uh, the renewable energy world as well as the 3D printing world, and I can see some critical mass here forming. And therefore, uh, just because the historical performance and experience has been bad doesn't mean that it will always be so. Now, in terms of the engagement, numbers for cricket i would say that they left me a little bit underwhelmed but then again i don't know that i have a you know frame of reference here so if i if i'm comparing this to axon i'm pretty sure that axon uh you know devices are are, are used more than 63% of the time um at least i would hope so for the sake of everybody and you know involved um in law enforcement but you know in this case Okay, I can see it, especially because so much of their customer base, almost 70%, are actually hobbyists. They are not the, the professional craft makers selling on Etsy necessarily. Those only come about to, to come to about 30% of the total user, user base. So 
you know, with those numbers, yeah, I would expect that, you know, like there will be those crap, those machines um, that are bought and maybe put in, put in the closet or someone gives you a birthday gift or a holiday gift of a, one of those machines that, you know, you may not use so much. But still, you know, I like to see, to, I like the fact that the numbers have been trending upwards, uh, even though it's very slowly, um, low 60s to around mid 60s now. And uh, yeah, I want to keep. I want to see this trend continuing. And uh, and frankly, I you know I I just want to see um, people creating even more creative things with with these machines. So there's still a lot. There there's still kind of uh, something to see here and follow over the next uh, couple of quarters or so. Um, but you know, again, I'm not too excited about hearing a number like 63% of users uh, engaged. At first, when I heard those numbers, I, I think I was a bit skeptical. But then I'm thinking about all the consumer products that we buy and then leave inside of our closets. Uh, 63% feels like that is an item that is still sitting out on somebody's desk a majority of the time, which as I've reflected more upon those numbers, does feel like a win, especially considering those retention numbers and those engagement numbers were about the same pre-pandemic. So that's not some weird abnormal pandemic boom that we're seeing. That's some pretty sustained average level of engagement. I want to ask you about their subscription and their app offerings, but really quickly here, just to, to further clarify on the machine sales, we talked about that being around 40% of their revenue. Another large percentage of their revenue are their accessory sales, which we mentioned, which are just over 45%. So those two things make up the majority of their sales. And machines are sold both on Cricket's website and on Amazon, as well as from partners like Hobby Lobby, Michaels, Target, Walmart. So they're sold in a ton of locations. I think what's worth kind of mentioning here, at least at least off the bat, is that over 60% of revenue does come from what Cricket says are their top seven retailers, presumably Amazon plus six others. And nearly 50% of those sales did come online. It'll be important in my perspective to have more sales shift to Cricket's branded website away from third-party retailers because that's lower margin sales for them. But still, having distribution in Target, Walmart, Amazon, Hobby Lobby, Michaels, I mean, Joanne, that's all great. That's important when you're still building up your sure. brand. Absolutely. And it's definitely kind of proof of concept that this is a legitimate product that's sold, you know, in all the major retailers. I imagine also in some of the physical locations of Target and Walmart and so on, they don't have a, a lot of free space on their shelves uh, for do-it-yourself craft machines. Uh, so, you know, if it becomes a choice between Cricket and some other competitor, maybe the fact that Target and Walmart are putting the, those Cricket machines there tells you something about the demand for the product and, and the quality of the product. Another thing I wanted to also say, because you, you, you did mention that, you know, selling via third-party retailers tends to be lower margin, uh, a lower margin business than selling directly, obviously, from your own website. You know, there's that's also the case across, you know, the different sort of the breakdown of the revenue. So the machines, which come up to about over 50% of the revenue, that's a, about a 15% gross margin uh, business. Compare that to the software um, component, which is about, I believe, um, a little bit over ten percent. I think it's uh, yeah, something like ten yeah, percent of the of the of the revenue. 
it comes to almost 85% gross margin, maybe 85 to 90. It's crazy. So the disparity is huge. Uh, accessories are kind of in the middle, I believe around 50% or so. Um, so I think it's really in Cricket's best interest to really grow that software component uh, of their of their business, uh, if not for anything, just to to really buff up those those margins. Yeah. So talk to me a bit about the software part of their business, the subscription style revenue. I, I have a hard time conceptualizing this. And this is what I initially missed when I did my first pass through when I heard about Cricket initially, which was really the idea that you'd have people not only paying for a machine, but a subscription to presumably access stuff like licensed content on that machine. You mentioned it's around 10%, I think just over 10% of their revenue right now. Uh, do you see that? Do you see that being the majority of their revenue like Apple in 10 years? Or is it always going to stay small? Oh boy, uh, that's that's a really tough question. Um, I can see a possibility for that if we assume that those machines are kind of long lasting and people are going to kind of continue to pay the subscription while not necessarily buying new machines. So, but at the same time, we know that the machine side of the business is is expanding and growing even a little more than um, than the subscription side. So, and again, all segments in quarter one, 2021, uh, grew by over 100%. Um, now, you know, the, 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 the machine side grew slightly more than the subscription side. Everything is growing very impressively, but, you know, uh, the first look when you say, hey, we're, we just doubled our subscription uh, revenue, that's great. But you're also doubling your machine sales, so that means that you know you're not necessarily getting the subscription sur- subscription revenue to be a bigger piece of the pie, if you will. Um, so again, maybe we would want to see the subscription side growing, maybe outperforming the machine side, um, so that you know we kind of look at this company as more of a let's say half and half you know uh hardware software kind of business right now it's very lopsided let's say it's almost 88 percent hardware 12 percent software um and we we want to see that software side grow a bit more and the software itself i think is really interesting because when i heard subscription offering in my mind it i priced it really cheaply. I I know that you can buy these things, um, licensed content a la carte, and it's as cheap as, say, 99 cents per print, right? So if you're looking to get a character that they then make agreements to license from a third party, you can print that for personal use on a Cricut machine. But this is actually really expensive. I think it just goes to show how many, I I won't say professionals, but bigger than hobbyists, I will say use these machines, right? They're probably on the Cricut Maker, that $400 machine, because the premium access for their subscription services is $120 a year, which is a Peloton-like price tag in terms of subscription access. And that is so interesting to me that they have 1.2 million paid subscribers when they went public. So that's as the third quarter 2020. That's impressive. That That's people paying nearly on average $100 a year for the subscription access. That that's correct. Let's let's keep in mind that this is a freemium model. I don't know if you're familiar with this business called Canva. 
but if you are, it's which I believe is private. It's an Australian company that's private, but one that has really uh, also uh, piqued my interest, if you will. And I've been waiting for that one to IPO for a while, but they haven't done it. Um, Canva is the solution to people like me who are creatively challenged and could not you know, make a good design of a PowerPoint, even if our life depended on it. So, you know, I use Canva. It made it so easy to just go there. You know, they have the design, they have the fonts, they have the structure, they even suggest, you know, slides for you. Um, and you can you can have access to a huge library of photos and uh, and logos and so on if you have if you have a monthly subscription. Now you know, here we have something similar in that this is a freemium model. So any Cricut machine buyer technically has access to the Cricut, um, you know, uh, uh, software, but their, their ability to use some of those features is going to be limited. So they don't have access to as many images. They don't have access to the logos. They don't have access to obviously, uh, or they may, they may have to pay a la carte for third party, um, you know, uh, content, licensed content. Uh, you mentioned Disney characters. So, you know, like if you want, if you are a seller on Etsy and you want to print, you know, a you want to make a, a Mickey Mouse t-shirt, uh, you can't just, you know, go to Google and, and print out a, you know, a, a Mickey Mouse photo from there and just put it on a t-shirt because I, that would be copyright infringement. So you actually have to pay for that. And, you know, Cricket makes it so easy to just um, purchase that licensed content through their software. And if you are a subscriber, um, then you have access to more and more of that stuff for reduced prices uh, or for free, uh, mostly for free, actually. Um, you have, all, all you have to pay is $96 a year. And that's, you know, not too exacting, let's put it that way. Um, they also have a, a more premium product, which is called Cricket Access Premium, um, that, you know, offers additional discounts on, on content as well as preferred shipping. Um, and and uh, I believe also discounts on materials and accessories if you were to go that route. And that's also only about $120 a year. So it's a reasonable amount of money to charge. And I believe they may have room to actually increase those uh, prices uh, on the subscriptions down the road. Uh, right now, I think they're more interested in sort of converting as many users as possible into the paid subscription component. Um, and again, I wanna see sort of some, some of those conversion numbers uh, be, being detailed a bit more clearly uh, in their next earnings release uh, to sort of get gain a little more confidence in the company and its execution and the ability to kind of transition the user base into a paid subscriber one. That's critical. And I see their subscription average revenue per user. So the, the ARPU for their subscription services has risen from just around $23 in 2018 to over $32 in 2020. So definitely some room to expand there. I was getting a chuckle while you were laughing, Yasser, because as we're chatting, Joey Salitro, an analyst here at The Motley Fool, pinged me. He was the initial one who brought Cricket to my attention all the way back pre-IPO, and I definitely scoffed it off. But he told me to 
to mention just how Peloton-esque this business is in terms of their expensive machine up front and their, the service added to it. Again, I'm not quite sold on just how big the target market is for this business in comparison to Apple or Peloton, but it definitely takes a similar approach. And that actually brings me to some comments I wanted to make about their go-to-market strategy. You mentioned off the top of the show that this was a profitable business, and that within itself is impressive. I think part of the reason why it's so profitable is because it's so word of mouth based. Over 90% of users make products that they give to friends or family, and 42% of new users came from word of mouth acquisitions. That's free. That's free users for this business. So they're not having to expel so much money to just acquire people onto their platform, onto their machines. So I think expanding more users um, is definitely a critical aspect of that of that value proposition for growth. And that should be increasingly easy considering the fact that these products are so widespread. Absolutely. And one of the things that really matter to me as an investor are um, you know, two metrics here, customer acquisition cost as well as customer lifetime value. And you know, I think when you have 42% of new users coming through family and friend referrals, that's fantastic uh, because that means you don't have to spend a penny advertising uh, to these new users in order to acquire them. So that really brings down uh, your customer acquisition costs and should ideally, hopefully also improve your customer lifetime value over time. Um, now, again, I'd like to see a little more granular numbers as to like how the how these users are evolving over time. Um, you know, are they starting out always with the free, you know, uh, software and then gradually shifting. How much are they spending? This is a, like what's the average? Um, I, I guess we do have the ARPU for the for the materials and accessories, but I'd love to also kind of track the trends uh, over time for that. And they do seem like they are increasing monetization, um, so that is good. Uh, that is good. I, and I just want to see that validated, uh, you know, over time. And I want to see the software again, playing a larger role of the story here, um, uh, in order for, for this company to really break out. I, I will have a nitpick here. And I, I think I called it in our outline, a minor nitpick. But as I think more about this business, I think it's the most critical nitpick that I got, my my most critical complaint for this business, and that's their addressable market. I, the more I think about how management defines their addressable market, the more skeptical I am. I think they have the market split into two different things. They're, they're TAM, which is, of course, the total addressable market, but also what they call their SAM, their serviceable addressable market. The SAM um, is mainly targeted at people who have engaged with at least one creative park product within their existing product line right now, right today. Um, and I think that's reasonable. That was 85 million people in the US and Canada. So that to me is reasonable. Their TAM seems ridiculous to me. They define their TAM as even larger. It includes the 85 million people that are part of their SAM, as well as what they call potential creatives, which are people who have done any level of engagement with any personalized items or any creative items like buying or using them. Speaking for myself, I love buying stuff off of Etsy, but I am not the type of person who is ever going to own a Cricut machine 
Those sorts of projects drive me completely up a wall, which is why I buy them instead of make them. And I think there's a large portion of people like myself who are just never going to be cricket owners. And that's fine. I don't want the company to spend a lot of money trying to convert me into a sudden creative person when I'm not going to be that person. I would much prefer them to narrowly target down on those 85 million people. Here's my other complaint. That's 85 million people. 96% of Cricket's users are women. So you can immediately take that 85 million people and cut that in about half because that's about, presumably, the size of the female population within that group. I just think the opportunity here is much more narrow than management has defined it. Yeah, if they can come up with a machine uh, to which I can dictate what I want and it just does it for me, uh, I'll be a user. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of the creativity scale, I am very, I score very low on that. In fact, I, I have a hard time even wrapping a, a present. So I'm definitely out of that, you know, serviceable addressable market and definitely, and also not the TAM. I agree with you, Emily, here. I think that the TAM is, is a tad too ambitious. Um, I, I can see the SAM, you know, the serviceable addressable market being around 85 million people across North America or US and Canada in particular. Um, but absolutely, you know, and, you know, when you talk about also the fact that 96% of the users are women, that's already halving your targeted demographic or targeted population of potential customers. So, you know, and, and while the, there's, it's definitely great, and maybe there's a great story to be told here about, you know, sense of empowerment that women have uh, through using these products in order maybe to have some, uh, you know, g- give gifts and creative things to the family or friends, family members or friends, or even run a side business. But, you know, I really don't know why that's okay. It's so lopsided um, to the point that it becomes a bit, concerning for me as an investor, where, you know, I want to see a targeted population that goes beyond just one one uh, demographic. I, I've rambled on here a lot, and I think I've lost track of time a bit. So I apologize. So let's quickly go through some of the finances and then touch on the key risks. The finances are impressive. And I feel bad that I didn't leave more time for us to discuss them. Because as we mentioned at the top of the show, this is an impressive company. It's a profitable company. Growth has accelerated into 2020. I believe their revenue was up 97% during the year. You mentioned here, Yasser outlined that net income doubled year over year. So this is a business that is reaching some level of scale. I think what stood out to me the most is that they're doing a great job of controlling expenses, even amidst this scale. Not only are they profitable, but their R&D expenses, their sales expenses, uh, SG&A, all of those things have declined as a percentage of revenue, even as the business has grown. So it's not just that net income doubled because revenue doubled. It's that net income doubled and revenue grew 97% in part because they're showing some sort of operating scale. I love seeing that in a business and it's perhaps what stood out to me most when looking at their financial performance. Absolutely. And oh, oh my God, if you look at their profitability metrics and the ratios, unbelievable. I mean, they, they have 
take in the return on total capital from 22% in 2019 all the way to up to 62% uh, in uh, in 2020 by the end of 2020 uh return on equity increased from 39% 2019 to 88% 2020 um and and it's just you know it's a similar story return on assets has more than doubled um, you know, gross margins are increasing. SGNA uh, is doing, you know, you, you talked about that, it's, it's doing well. It's profitable on an EBIT basis. They don't need to use those adjusted um, metrics in order to, to justify what they're doing. So they are actually profitable and they're doing a good job in staying profitable, even in, while scaling uh, a, great, a great deal and growing uh, triple digit uh, in the triple digits. Now, I don't know maybe if we want to bring this up now or leave it to the risk section but you know part of the the question here is when you when you have this kind of growth is it repeatable is it sustainable um now i'll you know there's definitely the the whole argument out there that you know well we just went through a pandemic year everybody was under lockdown this may have kind of tempted people to buy a lot of these machines and to try and start you know selling products on, on etsy and other platforms or or just you know practice their hobby from home and is that is that something that cricket can sustain into the future well you know we don't know i mean all, all that we know is that you know their first quarter results for 2021 when some of those you know lockdown measures have been lifted seem to be very very strong so again we'll have to wait and see uh, but we don't have a reason to be overly pessimistic at this point that's a fair enough point to make. Uh, I'll quickly add, in terms of what I perceive as the biggest risks, it's not financial at all. I think you'll need to look at the the ARPU. I just love saying ARPU. But the average revenue per user, especially for their, their subscription services, I think that's going to be critical for them to continue to expand over time, again, to make that revenue repeatable. Uh, but actually, I think the biggest risk to me is, is, is actually their ownership structure. And one of the things that we didn't mention that I think just stands out to me as a critical risk is the fact that a, a PE firm, Petrus Trust, owns more than 50% of the shares outstanding, controls the majority of the voting power for this business. And they haven't really sold out as a result of the IPO, at least not any of their controlling stake. And that concerns me a bit because what they did in September 2020, just before this business went public, was they forced the company to issue a special dividend, right? And they paid themselves a pretty penny. It makes it a little less egregious when you do have a profitable business that is generating a lot of cash. But the fact that they didn't sell out of their position, instead issued dividends, makes me a little bit concerned about, okay, well, are we going to be doing this in the future? Management doesn't plan on it, but I just hate having that concentrated voting control with somebody who isn't an executive or an owner of the company itself. Well, I I, I will even uh, one up you on this and say I, would ha I hate to have these concentrated controls, even with founders and CEOs, when they have an outsized um, you know share of the vote, um, you know, on the company and and sort of have effective veto power on, on everything. So, you know, I think these are very valid points that you bring up, Emily, and, and it's definitely something that investors should dig into when they when they assess their risk tolerance for a company like this. I would say, however, that it's entirely possible that the private uh, equity firm wanted to, you know, uh, pay holiday for itself 
before the company goes public. So because they know that once a company goes public, it might be that more that much more difficult to get away with these kinds of things uh, without punishing the stock. So uh, maybe they wanted a, a payday. Um, so that again, you know, something to look out for. Um, and uh, that's, you know, definitely should be on everyone's mind. Oh, I love that. And and Yasser, I know we didn't get the chance to get to all of the, the wonderful notes you had prepared for today's show. This is a business that you've done a lot of extensive research on, but I hope we can continue to follow it. And maybe we can follow up with an episode in the future, some updates on cricket. Maybe, you know, if we're ever shareholders at a point, we can, we can make that follow-up episode. But until then, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. I love being here, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. And if you say that and you think that I'm just joking, I'm not joking. I want to give a special shout out to Thane from Mesa, Arizona, who reached out to us last week just to say, hey, hey, Thane, we do check our emails. Thank you for the nice comments. Any fools want to reach out to us, you can always reach us at that email address. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Yasser El Shimi, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!